0: Joseph and his brothers is a really fairly well-known one. You might have seen the film or the stage play or, or even read the book in the Bible. And whether there, is, there was actually um, an amazing technicolour dream coat involved or whether it was just a rather smart, long-sleeved affair that marked Joseph as a manager, a supervisor over his brother's really doesn't matter. The fact is, he was the favoured son. He enjoyed his father's confidence. He enjoyed the love that his father should have given to his eldest son, Reuben. And his brothers hated him for it. And when he had those dreams, well, maybe we might think that he could have been a little bit more tactful, a little bit more sensitive to his brother's feelings, knowing how much they were jealous of him. Or maybe we might blame his brothers for their... Habitual jealousy and unkindness that led them to commit a truly dreadful act. Any of us who have brothers and sisters or, or more than one child of our own know how easily sibling rivalry can flare up. And we might certainly have a few words to say to Jacob about the utter folly of so openly preferring one son to all the others. But maybe Joseph was, of all of them, the most loving, the most obedient to his father. We know that the other lads behaved badly because we're told that Joseph brought a bad report about them to his father. Was he just being a telltale or was their behavior in fact so bad that it was putting Jacob's honor at risk? A couple of chapters earlier in in Genesis, we're told how they treacherously deceived the Hivite people who were their neighbors, pretending that they were all friends and everything was nice and comfortable between them, and then as soon as they were at their weakest, massacring them. And Jacob himself complained that they made his name obnoxious in the land. There aren't any children here, are there? No, I will go on then. (laughs) And then how Reuben the eldest son slept with Bilhar, who was not only his father's mistress, but also the mother of two of his own brothers. I mean, come on! That is just not the act of a loving and respectful son or brother. And then there's that charming little anecdote in the next chapter about Judah when he's an adult and a father himself how he cheated his daughter-in-law of the third husband that he'd promised her and slept with her himself. Oh, I didn't know it was my daughter-in-law. I thought it was just a prostitute, which of course makes it perfectly all right. These were not nice people. But then Joseph had those dreams, extraordinary dreams, weird dreams. What would we do? Surely we'd want to, to tell someone about them. What do you think they mean? Do you think they mean what I think they mean? And what more natural than that Joseph should want to tell them, discuss them with his own family, his father, his brothers. I'm not a chap, so I really don't understand what goes on in a chap's head. But I have two sons, and the younger one looks up to the older one. As much as Tom loves his father, It's Edward he wants to spend time with, Edward whose opinion he cares about. And Joseph had 10 older brothers. Maybe Joseph was just trying to have a normal family relationship in a family that didn't do normal relationships. And those dreams were extraordinary, weren't they? Impossible, really, one would have said was joseph one of the youngest in the family really going to rise to a position above that of all his 10 older brothers was he really going to be so important that not only his brothers but his parents would bow down to him impossible absurd disturbing dreams meant something in those days in that culture they they were significant they were they, they were the They were not just the product of too much cheese for supper. They were a direct word from God. So as unlikely as they seemed, Jacob kept the matter in mind. He pondered these things in his heart. As well he might, considering he himself was a younger son who had outstripped his older brother... And Joseph's brothers couldn't laugh them off. They couldn't sweep them under the carpet as they would have liked. And their hatred for him grew. Daddy's favourite. Daddy's special little soldier. And they let it fester in their hearts until the unthinkable began to seem like a perfectly reasonable proposition. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious beast devoured him. Let's see him dream his way out of that one. Well, in the end, they didn't actually kill him, did they? To give credit where credit's due, though it's little enough credit after all, Reuben exerted what little authority was left to him as the older brother and persuaded them not to kill Joseph, just to chuck him into a cistern. And Reuben intended to come back and rescue him and sneak him away to safety as soon as he could. But then Reuben's plan didn't work, because as soon as his back was turned, Joseph's brothers sold him to a passing band of Midianite merchants. We all know how the story progressed from there what Jacob's sons intended for evil, God used for good and to make his extraordinary, impossible promises come true. But Joseph was going to have to endure several years of trouble and suffering before that came to pass. And this is where we see an example of God's grace at work. God knows the trials which his people will have to face And he has ways of preparing us for those trials. God gave Joseph the prospect, the promise of his advancement to support and comfort him under the long and grievous troubles that were coming to him. In Matthew's gospel, there's a story about how Jesus sent his disciples ahead of him in the boat to cross the lake while he went into the mountains to pray alone. And during the fourth watch of the night, when the boat was in the middle of the lake, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. He walked on water. And when Peter saw him doing this extraordinary, impossible thing, he asked Jesus to command him to do it too. And for just a few seconds, milliseconds even, he did it. Peter walked on the water because Jesus had told him he could. And then he panicked and it was all over. But for that millimeter of time, Peter too did the impossible. And the disciples who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now the disciples too had a great deal of trouble ahead of them. And Jesus wasn't going to be there to encourage and guide them. They were going to have to carry on his ministry on their own. How are they going to do this? How are they going to endure the hardships and the persecutions? And why? Why would they? For a man they'd known for three years, who then went and got himself executed by the authorities? Who knows? But for someone they believed, they knew in their hearts to be the son of God? Oh yes, that's a very different kettle of fish. God has ways of preparing his people beforehand for the trials which we cannot foresee. He prepared the disciples to withstand the difficulties of their ministry. He gave them a hope to hold on to. Christ himself had a joy set before him, and so have we. The Bible teaches us that as human beings, we are going to experience trials and tribulations in this life. And you may have noticed by now that the Bible is not wrong, but we have God's word that they may be overcome. Before his death on the cross, Jesus said, I will pray the Father, And he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. The power of his kingdom in our lives does not make us immune from life's struggles. We know that. But it does give us the promise of God's grace, of provision when we need it, strength for the day, comfort, guidance and healing, and ultimately victory. Through Christ our Lord, he who endures to the end shall be saved. And saved for what? For life. For an eternity of life in heaven with the Father. Now surely that's a promise, a hope worth holding on to. Amen.